Coffee isn't just a drink, it's who you are. We are Little Green Hive, and we're here to serve that perfect cup of coffee made just for you. We're women-owned and locally sourced. Our mission is to provide the best product for our customers, as well as strengthen our community. From fair trade coffees and teas, to breakfast, lunch, and smoothies, we have everything you need to start your day off right. And now serving our spring drinks. Come visit us in downtown Roanoke, Grandin Village, and Daleville Town Center, Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Hey, it's Leanna. Before we get to the episode, we want to take a second to thank you for listening. The fact that you chose this episode out of the millions of podcast episodes that are out there, that's pretty cool. We'd love it if you left us a review, subscribed, shared us with a friend. And if there's something you want to see us talk about on Hometown Stories, just let us know. Send an email to hometownstories at wdbj7.com. Okay, now let's settle in for today's episode. A historian walks into the National Archives and walks out with something we've never seen before. I'm really excited that that it's out there for the world to see. Dr. Ed Gitry is now able to share with us microfilm reels containing many confessionals from World War II soldiers. Hundreds of pages of the good, the bad, and the very ugly of wartime life. And I just knew that day, I was like, these need to be out there in the world. You know, you hear about wars in the nations, but you don't really hear all that much about the people involved from their point of view and their personal circumstances. So I think it was a good thing to do. In this episode of Hometown Stories, how history and technology are painting us a more intimate picture of life as a soldier, one this historian hopes will allow us to better understand the greatest generation and to see these people for who they were, the warts and all. All right, let's start today's episode with a thought exercise. What do you picture when you think of World War II? Maybe it's something like scenes from Saving Private Ryan or Rosie the Riveter or fighting Nazis from the land, the air, and the sea. Perhaps you think of a trunk of your grandfather's military uniforms, war stories you were told, some you would never hear. Whatever it is you picture might not be the whole story. I knew at that moment that troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. For decades, Historians and storytellers have depicted World War II in films and shows and books. They aim to help us better understand this definitive moment in history. For Dr. Ed Gitry, the goal was the same. The approach was different. For me, what really was important at the root of what I was doing and wanted to do was to make these people human. Today, Gitry is an assistant professor of history at Virginia Tech. But this story starts even before he became a Hokie. In 2009, he was at the University of Virginia studying history of the social behavioral sciences. He was focused on the 1950s as veterans were adjusting back to civilian life. So he makes a quick research trip up to DC and one day he pops into the National Archives in Maryland to look at some microfilm reels. And I, I hate microfilm reading, reading from a microfilm machine. It's really 
hard on the eyes. It's not a pleasant experience. If you talk to other, uh, other historians, they'll complain about it as well. And as he's looking through them for his research, he kind of stumbles into another set of reels. And the, the label is really nondescript. Um, you would have no idea what really was inside the box until you put the first reel on the reader. So it was like the last day, it was a Saturday. They closed early on Saturdays. And, but I was like, I wanna see these. And the reading room, the microfilm reading room was almost empty. There was hardly anybody there, but I just remember exactly where I was sitting in the room. And what he pulls up on the reader is a page of smudged handwriting, almost 80 years old. It's a survey response from a soldier during World War II. And in these reels, there are thousands of these kinds of pages. The prompt asks soldiers, is there anything else you want to share about your military experience? There were thousands of written responses, pencil on paper, completely anonymous, and vastly varied in their scope and tone. Some passages were funny, others were haunting. I could tell immediately that there was an honesty to these documents I was reading. Uh, they were really raw and I was fascinated because so much of the material from World War II is censored, either officially censored or a lot of self-censoring as well. And these were uncensored. <laughs> there were 44 microfilm reels with 15 to 1600 images on each. Gitray snaps a few pictures of what he finds on his digital camera. Remember, this is 2009. And when he gets home, he immediately starts transcribing them. Both in terms of the honesty and the uncensored nature, but also the scale of the program and the number of documents. Like, there's nothing like this that I had ever seen or knew about. And they were just really, they were profound and they were moving. And I just knew that day, I was like, these need to be out there in the world. Like people need to have access to these because they tell a different story. Gitry explains that these anonymous free responses from soldiers were part of a large scale operation to pull American troops at the start of the war. Gitry says polling was everywhere by the 1930s after first being pioneered during World War I. You had Roper and you had all kinds of opinion polls for everything from products to presidential races. And so this is coming at this, the, the, the war comes at this period in which these practices had become really widespread and used in industry as well. But they'd yet to be used extensively in the country's largest employer, the military. Roper had proposed doing some surveying and the answer came down from the Secretary of War, no way are you going to, am I gonna unleash you and allow you to conduct polling with, with soldiers? That, that's not how it works. Why were they skeptical or concerned about doing it? I think that it was a matter of discipline, that the thought that you would empower the enlisted man to um, speak back to command as it were, uh, was not part of the military tradition. But on the other side, the way in which the war was sold to the American public was that this was gonna be a democratic army. And that's really what changed, or at least opened the door and did change some minds, is that if this is gonna be a democratic army of citizen soldiers, these are citizens, we need to hear from them. 
The army was growing so large, so fast, and there were growing pains leadership needed to sort out to be its most effective. So, cautiously, in the fall of 1941, the research branch of the military worked to roll out these poles. They were readying the process at the largest army installation at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Then, on their radio sets, comes stunning news. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. And immediately they were like, we have got to do this survey because these men could get shipped out. We don't know what's going to happen. So the very next day, they get to work surveying 1,800 men for planning Survey 1. Those men would be called, they wouldn't know what was going to happen necessarily, to a theater or mess hall. And once they were there, they would find out that they were going to be filling out a survey that might have a few dozen. The first one had about 118 questions. And then they would sit there and they would fill them out with these little pencils. These polls eventually went to a half a million service personnel all over the world. Most of the survey was usually multiple choice. They asked soldiers to rate certain things, like on a scale of one to five, how well does your uniform fit? Do you like the food served to you? Do you think most of the men in your squadron would go to bat for their commander? So the, the importance of the, the program was that during the war, the survey results were used in lots of programming and policy. Everything from what was shown in, theater, in the, the theaters to the soldiers, like what did they want to watch? What did they want to read? What did they want to eat? but also larger policy implications. Gittry says this polling method and its results were detailed in a series of books published starting in the late 40s. And those have come to be well-known by military and social historians like Gittry. But the very last page of those surveys, these free responses where soldiers could tell the military anonymously whatever they wanted, never seemed to have made it far beyond the archives after the war. Until now. Some of these written responses are heartwarming. They ask what it feels like to have returned home. And the soldier wrote, wonderful, in all caps, really big, and had like wavy lines underneath it. Some are kind of funny. Spam, spam, spam. I go to sleep, I see spam. <laughs> and that's it. That's the response. Some come straight from the front lines and the fatigue of combat. This soldier wrote, Men who have been overseas over two years begin to feel as if they're forgotten. They need to go home for a rest and an opportunity to see their folks again. Their period of usefulness has expired because they see their friends killed and mutilated and know that under the present situation, they will probably have difficulty escaping the same. And many of those responses are about the growing pains, the inefficiencies they saw daily. Many competent and learned men have to be subjected to taking orders from 18-year-old corporals and other non-competents, which reminds me of an officer in my company who can't even read. And a lot of responses capture their frustrations at not doing the job they felt best suited for, or like this soldier, not getting placed in the job he was promised. This made me feel rather bitter, like I was placed in the army by a pack of liars. 
In civilian life, I believe this would be a breach of contract and the Army another recruit. In spite of this, I still have a lot to fight for and am trying to make a good soldier, but I would hate to see other young kids rushed in like this. I don't think the Army does much to avoid square pegs and round holes. But others show a deeper, darker aspect to life as an American soldier, particularly if you were Black. A survey from one African-American soldier includes this. It should be kept in mind that we're fighting to defeat the so-called superior races, not to develop them at home. This was the deep irony identified in many responses from black soldiers, that though war was sold to the public as a fight for democracy, one yet to be fully available to all at home. One soldier writes in his survey from 1943, the Germans deny a minority group the privileges of working at profitable jobs and permit them only the most menial. He goes on to say, in the representative democracy of the U.S., the same condition exists. Therefore, it would appear that my country is guilty of the same things she attempts to punish another for. Not only did they address racism and inequality at home, but in the very institution they were called to serve. One soldier writes, since I've been in the army at least three times, I have come close to losing my life on this side of the water because I won't stand for one of the superior race to abuse me vocally or physically. So they didn't survey African-Americans in the very beginning. They started to survey them in part because the African-American press wrote a lot about segregation in the military and on camps. And the Army had no rebuttal. They had nothing to counteract what was in the press. And that was one of the motivations to start to survey African-Americans. And in early surveys of the white soldiers, Gittry said when asked about integrating rec halls and other facilities, the response was clear. Segregation is really expensive. When you're building a massive military and you're, you're, you're either expanding, rapidly expanding uh, bases or building new ones. Uh, so it was difficult to, to maintain uh, segregation even though they were committed to it. So they asked them and the vast majority of whites said no. They were opposed to it. What surprised the surveyors was how many Northern whites were opposed to integrating facilities. But it's these very same surveys later on that Gittry believes paved the way for eventual desegregation of the military. What does change is that in 1944, there is a dire need for replacements in the European theater and they need new recruits. So there is approval to integrate black combat troops, volunteer troops into, into white companies. And there was a lot of concern that if you do this, it's gonna destroy morale, but the exact opposite happens. And in the spring, they're involved um, in combat side by side, black and white soldiers, and they surveyed the white commanders and they not only said that these black soldiers performed admirably, but that relations were improved. And that was hard evidence. 
Guidry says there was growing unrest among the African-American soldiers and activists at home. And then here was this hard evidence from surveys showing integration was possible. By 1948, after the war, the military was formally desegregated. So when we're talking about the civil rights movement and the transformation, there's a direct line from the survey program during the war and these major events in the movement. Survey responses from women in the military were not preserved, but responses to questions about women in the military were, and many are openly hostile. One man wrote, the so-called soldier followers are driven from the camps. All they have to do is join the wax, and they could carry out their immoral work under government sanction. Another man said in his survey that after the war, married women shouldn't be allowed to work unless widowed or left with a crippled husband. Other types of responses are even more striking. There were soldiers who said, we should have teamed up with the Germans and, uh, you know, gotten rid of the Jews. My students are shocked by this. In his effort to share these responses with the wider world, in 2015, Gittry enlisted the help of his Virginia Tech students to transcribe the microfilm reels. What they learned from the responses and the survey program became part of the curriculum. So you have cadets who come in who it really resonates when they're reading about these um, enlistees who are around their age and their gripes are so similar and they can relate. But then also for the civilians who have no military background, that human experience of the war draws them in. And what I tell students is that I, I know myself how easy it is to be overwhelmed by the scale of the war. So for me, like one of the challenges and also one of the rewards is to try to personalize it. What was it like for an individual soldier to navigate the military and to, um, to have experienced the war? And so that grounding is so important to getting them to, to look beyond the myth of, of the generation, the greatest generation uh, that we've built up, and to see these people for who they were, the warts and all. That's so interesting because we continually call them the greatest generation. Do you feel that this project that you're working on is part of that myth busting? Yes, it is. Uh, it's not my intention to, because I think that there are some people who uh, really take issue with with the greatest generation. I was going to say, that's a controversial thing it, to, it to is. say. It is. So I didn't intentionally go about you know building this project because I wanted to do that. For me, what's important at the root of what I was doing and wanted to do was to make these people human. And so that's that's the vantage point. And and so there were people who, who served, who uh, signed up after Pearl Harbor and you know, kind of fit that stereotype. But there were lots of young men who were enlisted um, who did it because it was the law, you know, and, and they may have grown to appreciate their service and to have had these amazing experiences, uh, but they're it's not a monolithic generation. And that's certainly what you get out of this collection is just the range of experiences, the range of intentions, and the meaning that these young men and women uh, drew from the war. Even with the students helping him transcribe, Gittry knew that if he wanted to make this resource available to the public and to historians, he was going to need more help. 
The National Archives helped digitize many of the reels, and then he turned to the internet. He used a platform called Zooniverse to find worldwide volunteers. When he uploaded a new microfilm reel, they'd get to work. On the anniversary of VE Day in 2018, the American Soldier and World War II project launched with a day-long transcribathon. It would be the first of many held at Virginia Tech and around the country, and even all the way around the world. Hello. How are you today? I'm fine today. It's a lovely summer's day. How are you? This is Marie Eklid, who lives in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in England. She's one of the project's most dedicated transcribers, with hundreds of edits under her belt. Do you know if members of your family uh, were involved in World War II and in some capacity? Well, my grandfather was in the Rifle Brigade, and he he was in World War One, And then my dad was in the Second World War. He was um, on the minesweepers. And I think one of his minesweepers was torpedoed because they were all under the sea and there was a lot of fire and flames, but he never actually talked about it. Marie, who says she's an avid reader and history buff and genealogy enthusiast, found herself learning things about the war she never knew and became more engaged with each new transcription. One of them said, and another thing, if they want to keep the morale of the soldiers up, for God's sake, don't ever serve another piece of spam. They didn't like spam. And another one said, where does the army get a hold of so many lambs for the stew we get? I have ate so much of it that I think at time I will grow a coat of wool myself. So you got little things like that to offset the realities where it wasn't very nice. You know, you hear about wars in the nations, but you don't really hear all that much about the people involved from their point of view and their personal circumstances. Did you find yourself thinking about them and like what happened to them? Yes, I used to say to my husband, I wonder if most of these people ever got back home, which probably a lot of them didn't. And um, probably when they got back home, maybe they just put it all behind them and they didn't talk very much about it. They didn't want to think about the bad times that they went through, but I just hope that a lot of these people that wrote these things did get back home safely and were reunited with their families. So it was sad in that way because at the end of the day, you didn't know what happened to each individual. Each microfilm reel was transcribed four different times in order to find the best match to the handwriting. And in 2021, on the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, Gitry and his team launched the American Soldier in World War II website, where now anyone, anywhere in the world, can read documents once relegated only to a box of microfilm. They said things, I think, in these responses, in the responses that they wrote, that they didn't write home in letters to family members but it's the kind of gripes that they talked about amongst themselves. And that's, that's, we get a window into those real conversations that they were having. It's a window with a view Gitre hopes can propel us into the future of our past. When I came of age in the 90s, there was lots of commemoration and a recogni- recognition that this generation was going to pass. And look at where we are two decades later, and there are just, there are so many veterans who are dying off. 
And I think that's going to be the real value moving forward as more of those voices disappear, is that we have captured so many of those voices. And I think that's going to be important because I think that some of the uh, the, the values that are connected to that generation, even if there's a myth of that generation, I think is um, important to preserve. So I'm, I'm really excited that, that it's out there for the world to see. So I first spoke with Dr. Gittry about this back in 2021. Now the American Soldier and World War II Project website has been out in the world for more than a year. Since then, he's begun working on museum exhibit collaborations, and he's even got a book in the works. And um, so that'll take me a little while, but I'm just glad now that I can actually use the material in the way that I'd really like to as a historian. I mean, that was, you know, selfishly one of the reasons I did the project was not only to benefit other people, but also um, my own my own intellectual interest scholarship. So that's one of the, um, that's a, that's a big undertaking. How do you reflect on this journey and how does it feel to now have it out there for the world to see, which is exactly what your mission was the very first time that you laid eyes on the microfilm reels? Yeah, I you know, I, I feel interesting still even more so just incredibly honored. Um, you know, it was really intense way we were doing it because with the funding and the grant that we'd received, we had two years to do it. And there was an incredible amount of pressure. I mean, all along there was affirmation of the significance and how important it would be. But looking back in hindsight, <laughs> um, I appreciate both the, the, the amount of labor that I put into it and other put, people put into it and just how difficult in the context of the pandemic it was to pull, pull it off and to complete it. But on the other hand, know that, um, you know, it was so meaningful. And the fact that, you know, it's not, it's out there and it's gonna be out there for years and years to come. And we did it. I can't imagine doing anything on that scale again. I mean, it was a massive, <laughs> I thought, you know, this is a little crazy. I don't know if we could do it, but, um, but we pulled it off, yeah. Gitry and some students at Virginia Tech have been experimenting with virtual and augmented reality to see how it might improve access to the records or make them available at museums all around the world. You can check out our website, wdbj7.com, to see what it looks like. Hometown Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. This episode was produced by me, Leanna Scacchetti, and edited by Ben Raquelmi. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin. Thank you.